0: Clearly some, but not all, charter schools have taken advantage of the weaknesses in current law, which has led to persistent corruption and damage to our district schools and all students in the state of California. Clearly we need to shore up this
1: law. That was Assemblyman Patrick O'Donnell at the hearing in Sacramento this week arguing in favor of some pretty severe restrictions on charter school growth in California. Welcome to This Week in California Education, brought to you by EdSource Radio. I'm Lewis Friedberg.
2: And I'm John Fensterwald.
1: John, passions were running pretty high in the state capitol this week. Charter school backers and critics were at it again as the Assembly Education Committee, which is chaired by O'Donnell, took up bills that quite a few charter advocates say would destroy the charter school sector in California if approved.
2: And there was also a reminder of the labor troubles that have hit a number of districts hard this year. In the shadow of the Capitol, teachers in Sacramento City Unified went out on strike for one day as a result of a dispute over how to interpret several clauses of their contract.
1: We're also going to take a look at an issue that doesn't get enough airplay. How districts build schools and renovate existing ones. Timing is right to take a look at this issue because the legislature is considering putting state construction bonds, that's billions of dollars of them, on the state ballot in 2020 and two years later in 2022.
2: I wrote about that issue this week, Lewis, and I'm happy to talk about it. But first, let's talk about charter schools. Lewis, what happened this week?
1: Well, John, I hate to start talking about bills because it's often not the most exciting thing to talk about, but that was what was on the table this week, three bills that were taken up in the Assembly Education Committee that really would have a very drastic impact on charter schools. Yes, but uh, these bills got people very excited. Yeah, well, for good reason. I mean, if these bills actually make it through the legislature, they would have a big impact. One bill would take away the ability of the state board of education to approve a charter school application after it had been turned down by the local school district and then by the county board of education. Patrick O'Donnell called that charter shopping. (laughs) Okay. Catchy term for what's been happening. Another bill would prohibit charter schools from opening additional schools outside the district where they received their original charter. That's been a problem. The district finds charter schools popping up in their own district, which they hadn't authorized themselves. But uh, I suppose the most drastic proposal is to place a cap on charter schools in the state at the number that would be in operation on January first, 2020. So that would be around 1,300, 1,400 charter schools, Right now, there actually is technically a cap, but there really isn't one. I think it's... A hundred a year. A hundred a year, but but the cap is somewhere over 2,400. So the number
2: of charter schools would never reach the cap. This would pretty much stop charter school growth in its tracks. Yeah, you'd have to open a new one only if there was room for it. If another closed, then there'd be an opening for another charter school.
1: Yeah, so it's very interesting. I mean, this is the one issue that is now,
2: I would say, the most contentious issue in terms of state policy. Yeah, you're right. Absolutely. The O'Donnell bill would do something else, too, that would enable school boards to consider financial impact of a charter in its approval process. And that is not allowed under current law. You can't consider the impact. It's just not written into the law. And O'Donnell says that's what he wants to do. And that has really upset charter schools because they think that this opens up a whole Pandora's box of what is a financial impact and when should it be applied and how do you measure it?
1: Yeah. California was the second state to pass a charter school law in 1992. It's gone through some pretty significant revisions since then, but uh, this would be going in the other direction. I think most of the biggest changes up to now has been to expand the ability of charter schools to grow in California. This would really push it in the other direction. And why should we care about this? I mean, about 10% of kids in California are in charter schools right now, a little more than that, and long waiting lists as well at many charter schools. So, It is an option that many people rely on, but concerns about uh, what impact it's
2: having on districts. Yeah, there are concerns about uh, some rogue charters that are self-dealing. People who start the charters benefit financially. That's one of the things it's going to address in terms of oversight. And then there's this issue of financial impact. At what point are there so many charters in a district that it begins to really impinge on the ability to serve other district schools? And one of the issues that's being raised by the cap is, okay. well, maybe you can identify Oakland and Los Angeles where there are 20 percent, 30 percent students who are served by charter schools. But then there are districts in the state and regions that are underserved if one measures it by demand. And so, you know, would you put a cap on that, too?
1: Yeah, no. And and it's not coincidental that uh, where we've had these two big teacher strikes this year, Those are both in districts with large numbers of charters. Many, many districts around the state have zero charter schools. That's right. There is a distribution issue, and I think this has been raised by quite a few people that maybe there should be more planning when people open charter schools, put them in places that really could benefit from them.
2: Uh, Perhaps so, and then though if you put a cap on them, then how do you do that? Well, it can't be done at that point. So, Lewis, what do you think the prospects are for passage? I think it's going
1: to be a steep hill to climb. I mean, these are big changes. The Education Committee has people who are really working in the schools, very pro-traditional public schools, and it has to get through the Assembly and the Senate. And then it's unclear what Governor Newsom will do. He, uh, he did sign a bill a few weeks ago imposing more transparency on charter school operations. He promised that during his campaign. But at the same time, when he signed that bill, he was very strongly saying, I support quality, high-quality charter schools. And uh, so hes I don't think he wants to be viewed as anti-charter. He's calling for a balanced approach. So he created a task force, right? Well, he asked Superintendent of Public Instruction Tony Thurmond to set up a task force to look at some of these very same issues that are in these bills. So what's happening with this task force? Well, the task force met this week for the fifth time. They meet every Thursday in the fifth floor where the Superintendent of Public Instruction's office is. And 11 members on this task force. And there is an issue that we don't really know what is going on in this task force because uh, meetings are closed to the public. Superintendent feels strongly that they want people to be able to talk openly and to deal with these very, as we saw this week in the Capitol, very contentious issues. But they have to come up with their recommendations. The governor asked them to by uh, end of June. So they're in a short timeline
2: here. So you've got these two parallel efforts task force at the same time the legislature is doing its thing. And so that came up at the hearing this week on the bills. There was some disagreement as to whether or not to wait for the task force recommendations or just go ahead and do it now. And I think you captured a little bit of that sound, right, between Assemblywoman Shirley Weber, who's a Democrat from San Diego, and Patrick O'Donnell. Okay, let's hear from Shirley Weber.
0: I'm not going to vote for this bill. I'm going to stay off of it because I don't think we have all the information yet. And like I said, I looked forward to the committee that was formed by the governor and the state superintendent to basically probe into a lot of these issues and help us come to a conclusion about what is best uh, with regards to charters. And I I still look forward to that information. I'll see what happens when it comes in, is how it affects these three bills that are here. But I can, in good conscience, vote for the bills knowing that many of us asked for a task force and now we have one. And it just got started, and we're going to do some major restructuring of charters before we have the information.
2: Shirley Weber was a school board member for a long time in San Diego, so uh, she's been involved in watching charters for decades.
1: And then the chair of the committee, Patrick O'Donnell, he had a different view. He feels that the legislature should continue with its work, regardless of what the task force does. We look forward to seeing the recommendations from the task force, which may help
0: inform and change the bill. But the legislature is a separate branch of government, and we should determine our priorities and move forward. We should not kick the can down the road. We should act today. We should not wait for a committee that is outside this building to come and tell us what to do. Will we listen to them? Absolutely. Will we incorporate some of their ideas? I'm sure we will.
1: And I have to say, John, one of the problems with having these closed meetings is that we don't really know what direction the chartered Task Force is going and whether they will end up supporting this legislation or the gist of the legislation. But, you know, one of the issues is that the task force is pretty evenly split between people who are pro-charter directly from the charter school sector and others who are not happy with the way things have gone, and then some people who
2: are clear where they stand. Some union members, some union leaders, right, on that task force as well.
1: Yes, well, those are the ones who would have the largest questions about charter schools. But, uh, you know, this is a couple of superintendents, not not exactly clear where they stand on some of these issues. So I uh, have to see where all of this ends up in a few months. But certainly the battle
2: is far from over at this point. Yeah, I think we'll have to find out whether what ends up is a blend of the two or whether the governor approves or vetoes bills that get before him. It will be fascinating to see how it ends up. Okay, we're going to go
1: now to an issue that... I have to say, doesn't inspire the same kinds of passions as uh, charter school issues do. But it should. But arguably, as important, school facilities. We'll be back in a moment. After plowing the way through the charter school bills and all the testimony for and against, the Assembly Education Committee also took a vote on placing two school construction bonds on the statewide ballot, one in 2020 and the next in 2022. Now one of the key issues in this whole field is how these monies should be allocated, particularly for modernizing and
2: updating school facilities. Some advocates for more equitable funding say the current formula needs to be changed to provide more state funding for districts with small tax bases like Fresno and Stockton. In districts like these, it's difficult to raise construction money to renovate old schools and make them safe and modern. To address this, we have with us Jeff Vincent, co-director of the Center for Cities and Schools at UC Berkeley. Jeff is also a co-author of a report for Getting Down to Facts, a multi-study research project on California education. So, Jeff, there's movement now for new state bonds for schools. Didn't we just pass one three years ago? Why do we need more?
0: Well, the reality is that there's a lot of need across the state to upgrade older school facilities, as well as, in some cases, build new school facilities to accommodate enrollment growth. The last state bond was in 2016, But prior to that, there hadn't been one for 10 years. And so state money had run out and there's a lot of need on the ground. And so local districts have been passing local bonds to fund their school facility needs over those years. And as the state money ran out, the state bond in 2016 funded some of those projects that were in the pipeline, as well as some new projects. But the reality is Lots of facility needs on the ground in schools across the state.
1: But how much of a need really is there? I mean, what are we talking about? Are schools, old buildings falling apart, new buildings, seismic upgrades? I mean, where is the problem?
0: I would say all of those things. All of that? I mean, one of the things that we don't know in California is actually that answer to that question. We don't have a statewide inventory of all the school facilities. We don't know what all their ages are or what all their conditions are. Certainly individual school districts have some of this knowledge um, and know it, but at the statewide level, we don't totally know.
2: Well, one thing we know is that in the early 2000s, there was a lot of student growth and there was a lot of money for new construction. Now it's pretty stable or it's even declining a little bit. So there's really a need for a lot of upgrading and renovation. In fact, that's what you spent a lot of a, of your paper looking at. Tell us about the current formula for distributing the money for renovation and modernization and, and why it's inequitable.
0: So the state funds school construction and modernization, as they call it. Basically, new construction or upgrading old facilities. And the modernization grants are awarded to school districts that have qualifying projects. And that is, if a classroom is 25 years old or older and hasn't had state modernization funds in that time, it qualifies to get those funds. The state shares the cost of that modernization with local districts and that state local match is 60 40 60 percent from the state 40 percent from local districts.
1: The local districts have to raise their own money, and they do that by floating their own bonds? Is that how they do it?
0: That's primarily how they do that. They do it through passing local general obligation bonds. They can also get developer fees, and a couple of other smaller pots of money are potentially available to them, depending on their circumstances. But the vast majority of those funds come from local general obligation bonds. That's a
1: pretty big chunk,
2: 40%. I was going to say that's a good deal. <laughs> 60%. <Okay. laughs> what's the problem? <laughs> yeah. Disagreeing again, John, <laughs> on fundamental issues. Well, a
0: new construction, the state-local match is 50-50. So it's straight down the middle of state funds and local funds. But on modernization, it was changed. It used to actually be 80-20 uh, years and years ago, and now it's 60-40.
2: So what's the problem? Why is that inequitable? Everybody gets the same percentage, right?
0: Yeah, so... In our study, we took a comprehensive look at all the school facility funding over the last 20 years, and we asked who got what. And what we found was that on the modernization side of things, there was real strong inequity in terms of who got state money and who raised local dollars. And what that means is that districts with lower property values and more low-income kids tended to get a lot less money for their facilities. Which
2: means they didn't have the money to put up the money to get the match. Is that what we're saying?
0: In many cases, yes.
1: But are there other issues there that these school districts that may not have the kind of robust central office administration to kind of put in the proposal? Isn't it pretty complicated to apply for these bond monies? It's and, not the easiest to thing float, in the world. And to float the funds themselves.
0: Yeah, no, it's a it's a very um, long-term and complicated process for school districts to raise those dollars locally. It's not a simple thing to put a local bond on the ballot and then to get that passed, although California voters across the state have been very supportive over the years. But it's also a process to apply for state funds, and not all districts do. Most of them do, but not all of them.
2: Well, that's, a, in many cases, the smaller districts that don't have the staff. But the other problem or challenge is it's it's first come, first serve, right?
0: Yeah, the state's program by and large is first come, first serve. So if I apply today and you apply tomorrow, you're in line right behind me assuming nobody else got in between us. Uh, So it is a first-come, first-serve approach, which, in my personal opinion, having looked at other states and looking at the state of California's program, is that we should really think if that's the best way to do it. Is it fair for all districts? Because districts have different capacity in terms of their staffing, different knowledge among their staff around facilities and construction management, et cetera. And the question is, is that the right way or a fair way for the state to do it?
1: I know. I thought our, our former great governor, Jerry Brown, he was very much against this first come, first serve process because basically there's no sort of priority listing. So are we still stuck with that system?
0: We still have that system. There, over the years, have always been folks who have raised uh, concerns about that, as well as proposed different ideas. You know, one of the things we've researched is how other states do this. The short answer is they all do it differently. One of the things many states do is not use a first-come, 1st first serve approach, but rather have funding cycles. They might take a bunch of applications in January and then again in June, and they may look at all of those applications that came in in January, kind of rank them in some way that, oh, these are the most important or the neediest school facility projects, and these are the ones we're going to fund.
2: But the problem is, it's districts that feel that they can't go to voters to ask them to raise the money, right? I've, I've been spending a little time in Fresno, and for them, it's fixing boilers and electrical systems. And meanwhile, other districts say, "Okay, our building is old; it's time to renovate or get a new one."
0: Yeah, I think you know the reality in California is that the average age of school facilities across the state is easily over fifty years old, and as anyone who owns a building knows, you can't not do the needed repairs over time or you're going to have a lot of problems. And so, you know, school buildings, particularly a middle and high school level are very technical buildings. They have a lot of functions, mechanical systems, et cetera, you know, not to mention the new technologies that need to be added to them. And so there's a lot of kind of annual and sort of every couple of year refurbishments and upgrades that really need to to happen. And so I think that's one thing that, you know, many people on the street may not think about or realize uh, that, you know, these buildings need continual investment. Uh, thankfully, there's been a lot of support across the
2: state. We're speaking with Jeff Vincent, co-director of the Center for Cities and Schools at UC Berkeley. So Jeff, what's the solution? How would you fix it? Well, I
0: think... There's a few things that really lawmakers should look at fixing, and uh, AB 48 is in the legislature now. Um, What
1: is that? What is Assembly Bill 48?
0: So Assembly Bill 48 is proposing a two-bond package, two state bonds in 2020 and 22 for school facilities funding from the state.
1: For a lot of money?
0: Uh, You know, the author has not identified an amount yet.
1: We're in the multi-billion
2: dollar range.
0: Yeah, the state's bonds tend to be in the 7 to $10 billion range.
2: So what happens now, Jeff? Do you see any chance that the formula will be changed um, for 2020 or 2022? What, what, what's needed to make some changes?
0: I'm optimistic that the time is right for a conversation around change. You know, there's a bill in the legislature right now, Assembly Bill 48, proposing uh, new statewide bonds. Remains to be seen the details of that and how much it will be. But now that we have 20 years of evidence of the state's strong participation in school facilities funding, and as we showed in our Getting Down to Facts study, you know, a lot of good was done from that, building new schools, modernizing thousands of schools, but there's lots of needs out there. And those monies were inequitably distributed to districts on the modernization funding side of things. And so I think now is an opportune time to... Revisit the state's school facilities modernization funding formula, bring it into the era of the local control funding formula, that is have some way of adjusting the state's funding by local wealth so that low wealth districts with low property values and or uh, lots of low income kids actually have a good shot at getting the assistance they need to upgrade their facilities.
1: That was Jeff Vincent, co-director of the Center for Cities and Schools at UC
2: Berkeley. You know, school facilities funding is a bit complex, and as we mentioned before, not enough people know how it works. And I wrote about it this week, and I really would encourage folks to look at that and understand the inequities in that formula, because it seems that it shouldn't happen, right? Everybody gets the same match, whether you're small or big. But the impact of that formula and the inability of poor districts to raise money for their schools is really significant.
1: Okay, John, I confess I haven't seen your piece yet. I will do this as soon as we're done with this podcast. And uh, that wraps it up for this week's podcast. Thanks to our sponsors, the S.D. Bechtel Jr. Foundation and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Our producer is Kobe McDonald. Our music is from Nate Schwartz Jazz Orchestra. Please subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm Lewis Friedberg. And I'm John Fensterwald. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week.